0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states.
1: Founded in 1610 by Archbishop Richard Bancroft, Lambeth Palace Library, the historic library of the Archbishops of Canterbury, is one of the oldest public libraries in England and the principal record repository of the Church of England. The manuscripts in its collection date back as early as the 9th century, and in part because it started with Bancroft's own outstanding personal library of printed books and manuscripts, There are some particularly illuminating and illuminated treasures from the early modern period. We are going to scratch the surface today and look at just a few special items. Among them are some books and manuscripts I did not know existed and that have changed my view of the period. This is really exciting stuff. You can find pictures of all the items we're going to be talking about today on my social media accounts. That's Facebook, Twitter, Threads and Instagram. My handle is at 16th, written out as a word, C for Century, Girl. My guide is the librarian and archivist of Lambeth Palace, Giles Mandelbrot. Giles has had a major role in the creation of a new purpose-built building for the library, which is now offering its first public events and exhibitions. The first of those is called Cantati Domino, music in the Lambeth Palace Library collections and is well worth a visit. Before joining Lambeth Palace Library, Giles spent 15 years as a curator of British collections, 1501 to 1800, at the British Library. He's also a leading historian of the book trade. He invited me to join him at the library to see some of the treasures of its collection. Show me what we've got
2: here. I did bring out, although we're mainly concentrating on early modern things, I thought it would be bad if you didn't see at least one of our really great medieval manuscripts. So this is the (gasps) Lambeth Apocalypse. Oh, my goodness. Which, even by the standards of our very impressive collections, is a star of the collection, mainly, I think, because of its extraordinary vivid coloring and the extent to which that coloring just hasn't faded at all so this is a 13th century apocalypse manuscript made at a time when there was a lot of consternation about the possibility that the world might come to an end so it's based on the book of revelation on the vision of john on patmos and here at the beginning there is the biblical beginning of the end of the world really being shown in this illumination.
1: And maybe you can describe for our listeners what we can see so they have an idea of the beauty of this book.
2: Yes, it's not a huge book, it's a middle-sized, squarish book, written on parchment, so on animal skin, and as would be very normal, the text would be written by one person, and the beautiful illumination done by a specialist in that. Roughly half of each page is taken up with an image, in many cases decorated with gold leaf, as well as with really vibrant colors. There's a deep dark blue, there's a red, there's a green.
1: And absolutely glorious pictures. These miniature faces are so well realized. We've got things that look like dragons and when you say gold leaf, we've got massive chunks of the oh, stuff yes. on these it's, pages. it's really
2: reflecting, picking up the light And if you look closely, there's some fairly horrific things going on. There's some disasters, there are all sorts of horrible beasts attacking human beings. So, this really is a kind of cataclysmic end to the world, which you can see taking place with monsters coming out of the sea and angels fighting, scenes of devastation and siege, people trying to fight with bird-like beasts and this was a manuscript interestingly which was commissioned by a secular patroness who you see here in fact she's the person who commissioned the production of this particular manuscript so i suppose this is a manuscript that people would use in their devotional activities to remind themselves of the fragility of life although i don't know that people in the 13th century needed much reminding of that really There's always speculation about why Apocalypse manuscripts go in and out of fashion at certain times, commonly associated, of course, with plague and Black Death and so on. Other suggestions have been Mongol invasions and things of that sort. So they tend to be commonest at times when people feel most threatened. But this is an absolutely sparkling example of this sort of manuscript.
1: And it's interesting that something so beautiful depicts something so awful, there's a comfort, a solace to be found in the beauty of this manuscript, even whilst what it's depicting is devastation.
2: Yes, Yes, that's a very good point, actually, a sort of irony. And it is an extremely high-quality production. It's beautifully designed in terms of the layout on the page, these double columns with their own little illuminated initials and decoration with occasional animals and leaf decoration and so on.
1: And as an early modernist, of course, I encounter lots of manuscripts and they include books that have script a little like this. But I also encounter many printed books and those printed books are trying to recreate the appearance of the book here. And I think... As a modern person looking at it, it's almost impossible to believe that someone has written this so beautifully and so neatly.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I can show you a very good example of that if you want to move on a couple of centuries at this point. Let's do that. This is a very good example of what people thought a book was supposed to look like in the middle of the 15th century. And at first glance, it does appear to be a manuscript. The letter forms are the familiar letter forms that we know from 15th century and earlier manuscripts. It's been finished rather beautifully with manuscript decoration, foliage, very elaborate initials, gold leaf. Rubrication, and to all intents and purposes, at first glance, and certainly if you're not thinking of other possibilities, it looks like a manuscript. And the funny thing about this particular book is that it still to this very day bears a manuscript shelf mark because in the first printed catalogue of the Lambeth manuscripts which came out in the early 19th century. It actually took in the cataloger, and it's listed as a manuscript in that, but in fact it's not. In fact it is the earliest printed book in the West with movable type. That's to say the Gutenberg Bible printed in Mainz in 1455. This particular copy is one of the special copies. It was printed on Parchment, so on a deluxe material, most of them were printed on paper. But what makes this one really special, in my view, is it's the history of this particular copy because the decoration which you can see, which is very beautiful. And if we turn to a different page, we'll see other examples. Here, slightly more elaborate with the Decoration running not only up and down the vertical margins, but also along the top and bottom of the text, picking out leaves and so on.
1: So the illumination we see is incredibly beautiful and has gold leaf as well. It
2: is, it's very beautiful, but more to the point, the experts on this style of illumination and this period of illumination in the second half of the 15th century assure us that this can be identified as being specific to the Thames Valley. So this is English illumination in a book printed in Mainz and in the first book printed in the West. It means a number of interesting things. First of all, because you don't have the decoration with that typical Mainz palette of rather strong yellow and green and brown. That's a Rhineland illumination which most copies of this book would tend to have. Because it has come unilluminated to England and been illuminated in the Thames Valley, you can be fairly sure that it was a special copy that was a particular wealthy person's commission and one would love to know who that person was, but we don't know that. But the other thing is that By comparison with other copies of the Gutenberg Bible, this is by about two and a half centuries perhaps, the earliest copy of the Gutenberg Bible that you can show actually got to this country. So it is really the first copy of the first printed book to have arrived, that survives, to have arrived in this country. Which makes (laughs) it all the more tantalising that we don't really know who owned it. Although, like many of the books we're looking at now, it arrived very early on in the library's history. So it was certainly here in the first half of the 17th century.
1: This is spectacularly rare on all sorts of levels. First book printed in the rest. First printed book that we know of to be illuminated in this country. And it's a very special book. Indeed, Mm -hmm. to look at. What a treat to see it. Thank you so much for pushing back a little bit before (laughs) the start of the 16th century so we could see this. Yes. Wow.
2: It is lovely, actually. It really is. It's lovely. And this,
1: we should say, is quite a lot bigger than the book we were looking at before. Yes,
2: it's a big book. The text is the Vulgate Bible, so the typical Latin Bible of the Middle Ages in its, what people in the Reformation realised was fairly corrupt form. That's the text, and so textually it's like many other manuscript Bibles of the same period, except that it has been printed with metal type, which has been individually cast and then assembled to create these columns of text. Amazing, thank you.
1: So what do we have here?
2: Really picking up from where we left off with the Gutenberg Bible, What we have here is a rather beautifully printed edition of the Roman author Quintilian. It's a work on rhetoric, so a work on how to present your arguments, how to impress people with your oratory and so on, possibly how to preach. It's rather suitable that this is a book owned by an Archbishop of Canterbury. And in fact, it's owned by the first Archbishop of Canterbury that we know owned printed books. He was John Morton, who was Cardinal Morton, the person commemorated really by the expression Morton's fork, a kind of double bind which he used on Henry the VII's subject. So Morton was a great servant of the state as well as Archbishop of Canterbury. He contrived to hold the office of Lord Chancellor and of Chancellor of both Oxford and Cambridge simultaneously while being Archbishop of Canterbury. It was quite a workload. Quite a workload, yes. I don't know what his work-life balance would have been like, (laughs) but Morton's fork is a term used for what must have been rather awkward conversations between Morton on behalf of Henry VII and some of Henry VII's wealthier subjects, and broadly speaking it would go something like this. You seem to be living very luxuriously with plenty of conspicuous consumption. This isn't really get reflected very well in your tax returns, and don't you think it would be politic to provide a bit more money to keep your king in the style to which he's accustomed? That would be one approach. The other side of the fork would be to say, you're not spending a lot of money. You must be saving so much money. Where are you hiding it away? You really need to come clean and provide some money because your king needs it. And that, broadly speaking, was his tactic. And Henry VII profited the royal revenues, improved under Morton's care.
1: Which does suggest he had been reading his Quintilian because his logic is very good, or at least his (laughs) rhetoric. (laughs) His rhetoric, yes, exactly.
2: It's a suitable book for Morton to have owned. We know he owned some manuscripts, some of which survive, though not here. He owned a few printed books. This is actually a very recent acquisition through the Friends of Lambeth Palace Library, and what I particularly like about it is that on this first leaf, printed in 1471 in Venice. It's a beautiful janson printing of Quintilian, but it's still at a time when printed books haven't actually developed title pages, so you go straight into the contents here. But on this first leaf, you've got Morton's personal coat of arms, and underneath you've got his rebus, the visual pun on his name, so you've got a barrel, the ton, with the letters M-O-R, written across it, Morton, and that's his book. And we were very pleased to get this a few years ago, because, as I say, Morton is really the first Archbishop who had the opportunity to add printed books to his library, as well as manuscripts. And it's a very suitable book for him to have owned.
1: And I do love the way that they created this sort of rebus for each person's name, because the kind of visual punning is something that we've lost, rather. Um, They have the audible puns, of course, in all sorts of ways, but with the visual puns through heraldry, I think it's rather clever. And it it takes us into a world of wordplay and imagery that we've otherwise lost.
2: Absolutely. And of course, this is a world where people don't have straightforward literacy. It's on a bit of a spectrum. You have people who are partially literate, people who need those sort of visual prompts to understand texts. And I suppose the whole Renaissance punning and use of that in a jokey way derives at least partly from that tradition of having visual prompts.
1: Where are we going next?
2: Next, we may need to go back about 10, 15 years. This is a slightly older book. It's a manuscript. It's a book of ours made in London in the early 15th century. So the point about this isn't actually the book itself, but rather the person who owned it. Books of ours are anthologies, really, for devotion. They're personal books, essentially. They're books that you might carry into a church, service and use on your knee, they bring together in an order which is appropriate to both the time of year and the time of day, passages that will help you think about your relationship to the saints and to the church and to God. So these are personal devotional books and they tend generally to have calendars in them and this is the calendar at the front of the book we're looking at now which Ah. gives a bit of a clue to the person who owned it because the date that's been marked in the calendar is the birthday of a king of England, and that king is Richard III. There's a Latin inscription which has been put in which says, on this day, King Richard was born at Fotheringay in the year. It
1: goes into the margin. Yes,
2: it does go into the margin here, but you can just make out Anno Domini 1452 This is a clue that this was a devotional book owned by Richard of York, King Richard III. And towards the back of the book is another clue because towards the back are some Latin prayers which are thought to be, in fact, in Richard's hand. So running along the top above the text there, some Latin prayers which presumably were of particular significance or which he wanted to remind himself of.
1: And do we have many books, do you know of, that have this sort of inscription or that we can link to Richard III, or is this really quite unusual?
2: Richard III's library has been studied. Not very much survives of it, although there's some quite good evidence about what used to be in it. There is no one place where you can find a lot of books owned by Richard III, so this is remarkable. And the story behind this book is that we think that it was in his tent at Bosworth Field, on the day he lost his life in 1485. And we think that because you may recall that the Battle of Bosworth hung in the balance for a while and the Stanleys, Earls of Derby, who were there with their own private army, supposedly there to support Richard III, saw which way the battle was going and came in on Henry Tudor's side. And that, at least arguably, was what decided the battle. And after the battle, the Stanleys were given the right to have the spoils of the battlefield. And this book, we think, passed into the hands of the Earls of Derby. And through them, eventually ended up with Margaret Beaufort, the mother of Henry Tudor. And from there, possibly into the old Royal Library, which we will come back to later on when we look a little more at the history of Lambeth Palace Library.
1: So this is one of those extraordinary documents, extraordinary books and for me an extraordinary moment of being in contact with something that was at the Battle of Bosworth Field. This is why we do the job isn't it Charles? (laughs) It's this utter thrill of seeing something that's not only inscribed with Richard's hand but is present there at the moment of his defeat. And
2: I think one of the nice things about it is that it gives you the sense of the ordinariness of the king's lives in some respects. It's not all about really magnificent books that they're being given as diplomatic gifts and so on. They did actually have books that they used and that they took around with them. And this, as you say, is a very tangible link to that controversial king.
1: And to his intimate, interiority, that spiritual life, his devotional life, that is something otherwise entirely secret to anyone else, just between a person and God, or perhaps between them and their confessor. But here we have evidence of prayers he's written in. So it's an extraordinary insight into this king. Thank you for that.
2: I'm Tristan Hughes, host of the Ancients from history hit where twice a week, every week, we delve into our ancient past. I'm joined by leading experts, academics and authors who share incredible stories from our distant history and shine a light on some of antiquity's great questions. Was the Oracle of Delphi really able to see into the future? The Oracle certainly operated, certainly gave many thousands his prophecies. And they were taken seriously in most cases. What can be discovered from lost civilizations?
0: There was a lot of volcanic activity, and in one of these sites called Kwikoko actually got covered with volcanic flows. And the early archaeologists they used dynamite, you know, to get at this archaeology.
2: And was King Arthur actually real? Ambrosius is far less well known. He's, it looks as if he has got a significant impact on the creation of the Arthur story itself. You can expect all of this and more from the Ancients on History hit wherever
0: you get your podcasts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring.
2: So the early history of Lambeth Palace Library is both known and not known. What we know is that Richard Bancroft, Archbishop of Canterbury from 1604 to 1610, left in his will all the books and manuscripts that were then at Lambeth to create a library for his successors that could be used as a resource in the metaphor of the day as an arsenal for his successors in their writing Preaching in their controversial work, in their work really to continue the fight to keep up the Church of England's side in the struggle against both the Counter-Reformation and the various more extreme or perhaps more faithful Calvinist factions that were really plotting the downfall of the Church of England at that time. I think one forgets quite how precarious, even by the early 17th century, that very uneasy compromise that was the English Church, quite how precarious that still was. So Bancroft founded a library, and that library was intended to stay at Lambeth. What we know much less about is what was actually in that library at the time that he founded it, because the lists that were made are not terribly specific, and there are plenty of books which you can't find or which could be other books, because they're recorded in rather vague ways. Mm. And it's only really later in the 17th century when shelf marks start to be written in the books that you can be entirely confident about when a book was or wasn't at Lambeth. But it is safe to say that many of the most interesting books that we have in the library today, both manuscripts and printed books, really date from that very early period of Bancroft's bequest. Now, as part of... Bancroft's bringing together of books with a view to helping his successors in office. He borrowed, let's say, a number of books from the old royal library. Here at Lambeth, he was very close to the royal palaces of Westminster and Whitehall, where there were libraries, mostly libraries dating from the 15th century onwards. And Bancroft was very aware that the church and the state were mutually reinforcing and in trying to construct his own library, he clearly felt that there were books that probably belonged more at Lambeth than they did at Westminster and Whitehall. And he seems to have had no qualms at all about transferring them. <laughs> After he died, the Royal Librarian, who was a man called Patrick Young, wrote a rather plaintive letter to the Bishop of Bath and Wells complaining that Bancroft had borrowed these books from the Royal Library and he hadn't returned them. There were several hundred of them, and, most outrageous of all, he understood that Bancroft had some of them stamped with the initials R.B. in guilt on the covers. So here we do actually have a book which is stamped with the letters R.B. on the covers, and if we open it up you'll see it's a book called Invicta Veritas, The Unconquered Truth, and it then goes into English for the rest of the title, explaining that it's an examination of, really, ecclesiastical law and biblical precedent as to whether Henry VIII's great case, that his marriage to Catherine Rarrigan should be annulled because she had been married to his brother beforehand, whether that case really stood up on the basis of canon law and of Scripture. So this is an interesting book. Maybe Bancroft thought he needed to understand the case law on this issue, not that long since it had in many ways sparked the Reformation. So interesting as a book that he perhaps picked up over in Whitehall. Why do we think he picked it up in Whitehall? There's an inscription across the title page in Latin which is broadly saying this book is complete rubbish in a slightly not very much more polite way than that. That's in... The Hand of Henry VIII.
1: Wow. So this book is something that Bancroft has acquired later, but it's much it's earlier.
2: This is a book by a man called Thomas Abel.
1: Catherine of Aragon's chapter. That's right.
2: It's a book printed in 1532, and it's a book which Henry VIII needed to have on his shelf because he needed to understand where the argument was weakest, where the loopholes were, how he could argue against his marriage to... Catherine. So here's a book arguing that in terms of the law and the church, the marriage should be regarded as being entirely valid, and Henry is quarrelling both on the title page and in the margins of the book with that assertion.
1: So we have to assume, therefore, that Catherine probably commissioned this book to examine the detail of the case and to find holes in it? Yes,
2: it's all part of presenting Catherine's case. And here you can see, I think this is where it gets to the nub of the issue, because this is a paragraph discussing what kinds of family relationship can exist between people who are then allowed to marry. And here again, you see Henry VIII's hand in the book looking for weak spots in the argument. And here he's objecting, saying, if a son can't marry his mother-in-law, then, by extension the brother can't marry his sister-in-law or his former sister-in-law.
1: So interesting to see that he's engaging with it in that very personal way, and not just farming out the intellectual work to other people, but himself reading it and commenting on it in this fashion. And that explains also on that title page why, when it says the Queen, <laughs> it's all scrubbed out. Exactly.
2: Yes. Quite violently, yes. Well in spotted. Fact, probably yes. By yes. Henry himself. I think so. Yes, I think he objected to quite a lot of the title, as you can see. He's crossed out the part that refers to the Queen as his lawful and very wife. In fact, thanks to Bancroft's excursions across the river, Lambeth Palace Library to this day has the largest group of books that have marginalia by Henry VIII after the British Library. So the British Library is the successor library to the old Royal Library. The old Royal Library was given to the British Museum in the 1750s on block. But 150 years earlier, a certain Archbishop of Canterbury had been taking his pick of the books there, and some of our nicest books are there. And I hope that no-one from the British Library is listening to this <laughs> podcast.
1: <laughs> I imagine, given that these were four centuries ago, these removals, that perhaps they're not thinking that they're due back anytime time soon.
2: Uh, these restitution issues now are very hot potatoes, and I sincerely hope that they'll be happy to let them stay here.
1: That's amazing. So we've had books written in by Richard III and by Henry VIII so far. We're doing rather well now, books of kings. I thought you might like to go on to Edward VI
2: actually now. (laughs) So this is a rather beautiful manuscript. This is a presentation manuscript, we think. It's a lovely little atlas, portalan atlas, because it's the kind of atlas that traces the coast. And you can see that navigation in the 15th and 16th centuries had got to the stage of knowing the coastlines quite accurately. They become a great deal hazier, certainly in some parts of the world, once you get away from the coast. Here's the map of the world as it was. This is from the 1540s.
1: And it rather fades out at the top of America. It
2: fades out where Canada might be. There's no Australia, of course, at all. But The actual shape of Africa and South America and so on, not too bad. Portuguese and Spanish navigators in particular had done a lot of work by that stage.
1: And a sort of absence around the Poles, of course. Yes. But I love the way that they've put on the mountains, and to give you some sense of the great rivers and the great mountain peaks across the world. So
2: this is actually a book made in Venice. It's in a rather handsome red Venetian goatskin binding with gilt decoration built into the back presumably for practical use is an actual metal compass with all the points of the compass around it we think this was a book that was intended for presentation to a king, you've got the royal arms illuminated right at the front but at a time when the Venetians were not quite sure which king it was likely to be so coming towards the end of Henry VIII's reign when he was quite ill, we think that this may have arrived at a time when the future Edward VI was actually being taught his geography, and that some of these glosses written into the margins may have been, you remember Edward VI was getting a very fine humanist education, and it's not impossible that this book was actually being used to teach him. The Venetians were hedging their bets a bit, because they left, right at the beginning of the book, facing the very brightly painted royal arms, is a very elaborate frame which had been left blank, and presumably they were leaving it blank because they weren't quite sure whether the book was going to end up being presented to Henry VIII or to Edward VI. So the suggestion is that this was a book prepared in Venice, sent over to the Venetian ambassador in London, with the instruction and fill in the blanks depending on who's on the throne when you get this except that nobody has so we are none the wiser about that but it's a very beautiful little book
1: it is a beautiful book and i love the idea that it might have been used in edward's education to give him a sense of his place in the world it's yes, rather absolutely. wonderful yes so detailed Now, this is quite a big book by comparison to the two we've just been looking
2: at. Yes, this is two books in one. This large book is a Serum Missal printed in Rouen, like many of the early 16th century liturgical books that found their way into England. So it's a book following the use of Salisbury, incorporating some of the liturgical, the church services that were particularly in use in Salisbury but were then common all over the south of England and in other places too, in fact. It was the commonest liturgical use that was being produced at the time. And the economics of the book trade, really, at that point, in the early 16th century, meant that printers in France, and in particular in Rouen, made a speciality of printing these sorts of books for the English market... So up until the Reformation, they were on to quite a good thing there. So here you see the Serum Missal and also you see the extent to which it has lived through the Reformation. So there are quite extensive parts of it crossed out. You can see both the red and black printing, the instructions as to what you're supposed to do at various points in the service put in red and then you get to the point canon of the Mass in the service, Catholic Mass, which is a point that people are turning to time and time again, and you get these inserted leaves of parchment in a paper book, so because they're being heavily used, they put a more durable material in at that point for these two woodcut illustrations, which have been coloured by hand, showing on one side the crucifixion and on the other side... Christ in Majesty. So an interesting book which tells you a bit about both the period immediately before and immediately after the Reformation. But why I really got this out and what I thought you might like was because set into this book, just pasted in at the front of the book and preserved because it's been pasted into a very stout large volume, is this single sheet. This is actually printed rather later because it's printed, as you can see, a little imprint in the bottom corner of the sheet, printed in London in the printing house of John Kaywood, printer to his, or her, her in this case actually, Her Royal Majesty. And Her Royal Majesty is Mary, and these prayers, or collects in the title, collects to be said in the Mass for the Queen's bigness, being with child. So these are prayers prepared at a time when Mary Tudor was thought to be about to have a baby.
1: And it's very moving, of course, to read such things. And the fact that prayers were issued for her during that period because she was not pregnant
2: she wasn't, but she thought she was. And, of course, uh, the succession depended on her producing a child, and there were a couple of occasions in the course of her reign, her short reign, when she had some of the signs of pregnancy, there was a sense of a phantom pregnancy, and there were actually celebrations in London when she was thought to be pregnant. And these are prayers associated, I think, with those celebrations, there were processions as part of this, cheering crowds assembled outside St Paul's or Westminster Abbey being issued with these sheets so that they would say the right prayers for the future of the country, really, and for the future of the Queen's child.
1: And it's just... Amazing that such an ephemeral document has survived because someone's had the foresight to put it in this rather wonderful book.
2: Absolutely. So this is the only known copy of this printed sheet. not surviving by chance because somebody's preserved it rather carefully in here, but an ephemeral survival of something which turned out to be rather an ephemeral reign in many ways. Wonderful.
1: Charles, what's our last treasure? We have a big box here yes. and a huge book.
2: Yes, it's a very heavy book. It's written on parchment, which is partly why it's so heavy. It's got these big silver-plated bosses, one in the center and then four on each corner. And it was held together by silver clasps. The legend is that Cromwell's troops made off with the silver clasps. I'm not entirely sure how well-documented that really is. This is a reference, really, to another entirely separate early modern library, which is now here, which is the Library of Sion College. So I describe the foundation of Lambeth Palace Library, the library for the Archbishops of Canterbury, built around a particular office, and the individual who held it starting in 1610 with Bancroft's will. Sion College was founded in the 1620s. The library was set up in 1629. It was founded in the city of London, so right in the middle of everything that was going on in London, commercial life, professional life, and it was founded really as a base for preachers, preachers in the Church of England who didn't have a parish. So with the emphasis on preaching in the early 17th century, there was more demand for preachers than there were parishes to go round to support them. So the idea of founding Sion College was really to provide something that in some ways was a club. It provided them with a social base, social life, but it was also an intellectual and educational hub for the clergy of the City of London, whether or not they actually had a parish. And the library very soon became more than that still because it was a library that had a very lively interaction with the professionals, the tradesmen the citizens of London, and it's a library that grew and was a famous library in the 17th century, had a legal deposit privilege in the 18th century and into the 1830s, and is now virtually forgotten because in the 19th and 20th century it went into a bit of a decline and the college closed its building in the 1990s at which point all the pre-1850 books and manuscripts that were left there came here to Lambeth and here at Lambeth we acquired in that way about 60,000 early printed books, plus some very interesting manuscripts and all the library records. This is the benefactor's book of Sion College which is one of the library records and demonstrates the relationship between the library and all the people in London who were both giving books and money to the library. And it starts in 1629, when the library gets going, and it runs all the way through into the 19th century. But just turning the pages, you get a sense of the great range of people. So lots of booksellers, Thomas Underhill, Citizen and Stationer of London. Each of these is a title, for the most part, books that he was involved in printing and publishing. A great long list of books from the 1640s, obviously a very interesting period in the history of London and in the history of the English Church. During the Interregnum, in fact, Sion College was one of the centres for the Presbyterian classes in London. Here you've got numerous clergy, you've got actually more booksellers here, goldsmiths.
1: And we don't only hear a story of generosity here, but we've also got a kind of snapshot of the jobs that people had in early modern London. And we've got people's Families, I can imagine a lot of genealogists would be very interested in finding their ancestors in this book. Having given books to the college, it's really an amazing record of people's lives who might otherwise go unrecorded.
2: Yes, and also of their interests because these lists of books involve choices, and so people are giving books that they think the college should have, or they're in some cases perhaps even more interestingly, they're giving money which the college is then spending on their behalf, so that you get a sense of at different periods what new books mostly the college wants to buy and then in some cases you get whole libraries really being represented because in the 1680s particularly after the fire of London where a lot of the earlier books were burned the college was appealing for more books and it received some bequests of whole libraries so here you can see lists going on for pages So this is the Earl of Barclay, in this case, his personal library. He died in the early 1680s, leaving his books to the college. And many of these books are here today.
1: So that's interesting. The books earlier in this book of donations may not be here because of the Great Fire. Right.
2: So the big books, slightly counterintuitively, they decided because they were more valuable, they would carry off to safety. So Sion College, which was at London Walls, so it was at the extreme north boundary of the city of London, they could see the fire coming. They had some opportunity to get things out of the way, and they moved their larger books out of the way, but they didn't get round to moving the smaller books in time. And some of those smaller books including, for example, some very interesting early Hebrew-printed books because Sarn College was quite a focus for an interest in Oriental languages and particularly in Hebrew texts and for the development of scholarship in those areas. A lot of their smaller books were destroyed in the fire and also the building was destroyed and they appealed after the fire for more books and for money to make up for their loss of income. Those appeals continued really up till about 1700.
1: We have gone from the apocalypse in the 13th century through to an event that must have felt a bit like the apocalypse with the Great Fire of London in the 17th century. And thereafter, it's been an amazing tour round just a few of the treasures of this library. But it gives the beginnings of a sense of all the things that have been preserved here and kept. Thank you so much.
2: And I should say, our catalogues are online, we welcome readers who want to come and use the collections, the Reading Room is open Monday to Friday, and at the moment we have a lovely exhibition which includes the Arundel Choir book, one of the great witnesses to early Tudor polyphonic music. and. We look forward to seeing people visiting the exhibition.
1: And that goes on until the 18th of September this year, so do come and see that exhibition. Thank you, Giles, so much. Thank you. And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and my researcher, Esther Arnott. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify, It really helps more people find, not just the Tudors.
0: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful.